Welcome to Labor Intensive, a show about the labor movement in Canada. I am your host, Jody Tomchishin. On today's show, we have an interview with independent journalist and podcaster Jeremy Appel. But first, the news. International Longshore and Warehouse Union, ILWU, voted 99%, 99% in favor of a strike. This puts them in strike position on June 24th. But of course, this doesn't mean they will go on strike on June 24th. Bargaining and negotiations will still take place in between now and then. But if no deal is reached by then, they will be in legal strike position. The ILWU represents roughly 7,000 port workers in British Columbia. They are demanding higher wages and, more specifically, are pushing back against automation. ILWU workers were at the forefront of fighting back against automation during what was called containerization. The name is sort of self-explanatory, but this was the process of retooling docks to more efficiently distribute goods through large shipping containers, and also helped contribute to globalization, allowing for manufacturing to be more widespread around the world. Containerization not only decreased the number of longshore jobs, but also was used to break longshore labor militancy by regimenting and isolating workers, making it much harder for them to mobilize and organize. I bring this all up because we are often told that automation is this good thing in terms of making workers' lives easier in some sort of imagined socialist utopia. But automation, as it is currently implemented, is used to increase profits and not make the lives of workers better or more enjoyable. In other words, we're not currently in the position where we can use automation to our benefit. Instead, it is going to go to the benefit of the employers. So good luck to ILWU Canada, and I will try to stay on top of this story because I am very interested in it. Speaking of wages, the Bank of Canada has decided once again to increase interest rates. The alleged reason for these increases is that inflation is too high. However, Inflation has already been declining. If you've been following this, uh, some of you might already be aware that likely the reason for inflation had to do with what was being called profiteering or greedflation. And a lot of that is starting to come down now as we are exiting the pandemic and supply chains are becoming back to normal to some extent. So considering that inflation is sort of self-correcting, it feels like these interest rate hikes have more to do with disciplining labor by increasing unemployment. The other thing that is wild about this is that some economists are saying that raising the interest rates like they are doing might actually slide us into a recession. So that's great. I won't go into further details here, but next episode, I will be talking with economist Jim Stanford about inflation, so if that interests you, stay tuned for that next week. Lastly, the president of New Brunswick Union, Susie Pruel daigle is pushing back against Minister of Education Bill Hogan, who is changing the province's Policy 713 by forcing teachers and staff to get parental consent before using a child's preferred name or pronouns. New Brunswick Union represents school psychologists. They are going to grieve this if it is implemented and are legally looking to challenge the policy change. 
This is just another way labor is taking the lead in terms of fighting back against LGBTQ plus discrimination. Several labor councils across the country have also been involved in setting up what are called rapid response teams to counter protest bigots who have been harassing pride events. You don't actually have to be involved in a union to actually get involved with this, so just reach out to your local labor council and see if they have anything set up and try to get involved, because this is not going to stop. This is uh, We're still sort of in the beginning of Pride Month, but uh, again, throughout the summer, not every city has their Pride events during Pride Month, so this is probably going to be a summer-long, depressing... <laughs> things. So please get involved, protect uh, your LGBTQ plus community, and, and thank you to the labor councils for setting these kind of rapid response teams up. If you have any news you would like to share about your own union or local bargaining updates or strike support or whatever, feel free to email laborintensivepod at gmail.com and I will include it on next week's show. Now, for this week's interview, I sat down with Jeremy Appel, who podcasts with Big Shiny Takes and The Forgotten Corner, both of which are part of the Harbinger Media Network, which is home to the podcast you are currently listening to, as well, of course, as other great progressive shows. You can also find Jeremy's journalism on his substack, The Orchard, which you can find at theorchard.substack.com. And as a final plug, he also wanted me to tease his upcoming book, when is it coming out? I don't know, but consider yourself teased. At the time we recorded this, PSAC members of the Treasury Board had just received a tentative agreement, ending their weeks-long strike. The Union of Taxation Employees were still on strike, and Jeremy had just written an article on his substack about the dismal coverage of the strike in the Canadian mainstream media. However, I do have two clarification notes before we get to the interview. The first is that we talk briefly about voting irregularities at the beginning, but don't go into too much detail. The background there is that some news pundits were complaining that the strike vote turnout was low and how a PSAC member filed a complaint, and this was all supposed to somehow delegitimize the strike. We then point out why this is nonsense in the interview. I just could have done a better job at explaining what exactly we were talking about, so I'm doing that right now. Lastly, the tentative agreement had just been announced the day we were recording the episode, so we do talk briefly about the work-from-home policy and whether or not Treasury Board members could grieve being denied the ability to work from home. To be honest, I don't fully know myself exactly how this work-from-home policy is going to work, so please take our own speculation in this episode with a grain of salt. But I will be speaking with a PSAC executive in the near future, and I do plan on asking them about this part of their agreement. So stay tuned, I guess, on that front. But with all of that out of the way, here is the interview with Jeremy Appel. With me is Jeremy Appel, independent journalist with his substack, The Orchard, also co-host of both the Forgotten Corner podcast, as well as Big Shiny Takes. I, I hope that's everything. Did I miss anything? Yeah, I mean, that's all the main things. You know, occasional Jacobin contributor, uh, you know, bylines at uh, Ricochet and uh, The Breach. 
So I decided to reach out to you uh, as a journalist due to the state of media coverage in the wake of the PSAC federal workers strike. You wrote an article for your Substack, which was discussing uh, how major outlets across Canada negatively represented the striking PSAC workers. Would you point it out is actually not reflective of how the average Canadian feels about uh, what the union members' demands were. And so I guess my first question getting into this is like what I guess we'll start a little bit broad, which is like, what do you think accounts for that discrepancy? Like, why does the media seem to have this uh, picture of what unions want and how they negatively cover them compared to what the average Canadian thinks about? unions and what their demands are well i don't know if it's appropriate to use this phrase uh given the uh recent revelations but i i mean they're manufacturing uh consent for the preferred policies of uh their owners and and, and advertisers which is uh one where the public sector is uh shrunk to the bare minimum and businesses are allowed to uh, push wages down as much as they can. And yeah, I mean, I think that's reflected in the editorial uh, positions of the uh, major columnists at major newspapers. Uh, you know, the Ottawa Citizen, I think, uh, published a couple things from actual PSAC members. But the overall tenor of the media coverage has, of course, been, wow, these workers are being so reasonable. Oh, my God. Uh, CRA workers want a 30% wage over three wage increase over three years. Like, that's insane uh, without providing the context for those demands, which is often absent in, in both reporting and uh, commentary, though it's much more evident in commentary when, uh, you know, at, at least reporters are trying to get the full picture, right? Obviously, there are issues of false equivalencies and, um, you know, a lack of appropriate context. But I, I think most reporters are, like, trying their best. But they're, of course, especially in at, at newspapers, are uh, increasingly overworked and underpaid, like public sector workers. I guess I'm reflecting on the manufacturing consent notion, which is kind of like what I was getting at with that question. It, it does seem to be, though, that there is this disconnect. Like, I don't know, is it that the manuring, manufacturing the consent, did it fail? Uh, or is it failing? Or is it just that, like, you know, given that the public was largely supportive of the striking workers, has has it just not worked yet? Or Or do you think the general public is starting to, like, I don't know, think that what the, the how the mass media is portraying uh, portraying union members isn't uh, accurate. Well, I think there is uh, a lot of popular distrust of the media that didn't exist, uh, you know, in the 80s when Chomsky and uh, Herman wrote their book. Um, and I think social media also plays another role, right? You can go and see directly what the parties involved are saying not just on social media, but on the internet in general. So it sort of bypasses the media 
like traditional media as your like one source of information. You can also read uh, independent news coverage. Um, so I think that sort of maybe breached the armor of the mass media in some sense. I I was surprised by by the results. I mean, two thirds of Canadians saying like, yeah, they should get shift premiums. Um, is interesting in light of uh, some commentary, like uh, the National Post comment editor, uh, Carson Jerema, um, whose re response to that demand was just seriously in brackets with a question mark, which is funny because I'm fairly certain uh, workers at the National Post do get a uh, shift premium. Yeah, that, that Carson Jerema article was just uh, terrifying, <laughs> just at how bad it was. Yeah, I mean, he's a complete meathead, right? I mean, that's that's how you climb the ranks of, of the ladder is by uh, either being obtuse or uh, pretending to be. I mean, he, even before he put seriously, like the, the lead up to that uh, bracketed question was this idea of like, oh, oh my, they want to be prevented from being forced to work past 4 p.m. Like, that's how he framed it when it's like, no, it's like, that's when you get into overtime and you want to get like paid a premium, right? It's, but he, by putting it as like 4 p.m. with a question mark, it makes it sound like, oh, how unreasonable that they don't want to work past like 4 p.m., you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, this guy doesn't work past 2 p.m., so. Yeah, I mean, it, to be fair, he's based in Edmonton and uh, uh, the UCP government got rid of like uh, time and a half overtime. Uh, one of the first things they did uh, when they came to power, um, which is wild. But um, I mean, that is uh, standard. And I was quite surprised that public sector workers uh, didn't already have that, as I'm sure many of the respondents to that Angus Reid survey were. It, you know, it's interesting, though, that um, one demand that didn't have that uh, a, a strong plurality of people opposed was for uh, indigenous uh, workers to who speak uh, an indigenous language to get a bonus. Um, but at the same time, that demand wasn't reported anywhere except for the CBC, which did a really good piece on um, what are like the non-wage demands of PSAC, because wage demands are always at the forefront in like mainstream coverage of news, right? It's always like um, they sort of pit these wage demands of workers against like the inconvenience caused to the general public by the strike. And it's just like, oh, these workers want more money, which is, of course, um, often, if not always the case. But uh, there are other uh, demands as well that I think are often a lot more interesting. I, I, I do also think that there is like a you know deeply entrenched anti-indigenous sentiment across the country. I mean, it's what we were founded on. So uh, it's not entirely surprising that if there are any of the demands most people would find unreasonable, it would be uh, giving indigenous people um, ostensibly special treatment, even though, of course, it, I, I mean, if you account for the context of how uh, indigenous people have gotten special treatment in in the opposite direction throughout history, then it's like, well, yeah, I, I, I mean, the federal government is going to have a hard time attracting indigenous workers and uh, they need to incentivize them to 
work for the government that has uh, oppressed them their entire lives. It is. I, I am actually kind of surprised that that didn't get more media coverage, including columnist coverage, because I mean, the, the only thing that came close to that was in Carson Jerema's National Post article. He talked about how they also wanted some money set aside for unconscious bias training as well as social justice funding. And it felt to me like that that was in a way trying to appeal to that like anti-woke sort of cultural mm -hmm. war rhetoric coming out of the United States mostly, although it does happen in Canada as well. Uh, it's just, you know, platforms. Well, well Tucker Carlson's gone, but, you know, who <laughs> was proliferating this well, stuff. Well, he's not gone. He's yes. gone from Fox. Yeah. <laughs> true, true. Uh, but yeah, like I... It is weird that, like, I guess because, like, the wage issue is something that, like, everyone can sort of relate to in a way. I, I mean, like, most people are working class. We all see, like, wages falling behind with inflation. So in a way, like, even with the media trying to appeal constantly to this, like, oh, they just want more money kind of argument. In a way, like, I think it's easier to see past that, that it's surprising to me that they didn't latch on to more of these social or cultural issues to sort of, like, foment the culture war with it. Yeah, I mean, that is interesting. And it's funny that in Jeremy's column, he doesn't even, right, he doesn't even need to attempt to explain why they shouldn't have that because he knows his readership just see those words and they're like oh my god this is this is this is marxism like encroaching on the public sector i think he called them obviously political activities he wrote it shouldn't even be up for debate that public money should not be used for what are obviously political activities as if like the, the government doing it like should not be political <laughs> Like, what, yeah, what does he think public money is? Like, wh where does he think that comes from? Um, but just, I, I mean, I, I found the uh, entire premise of the article that, like, the federal government has been, like, taken over by these, like, deep state operatives from the labor movement. I, I, I mean, just on its face, laughable. I mean, why are they on strike? And why does, is the union membership behind it? Like, that's why, like, the framing, too, this is, like, a common trope that at least, like, uh, I mean, it was President Carson's title, but like you see it everywhere with it, the union bosses as being like these yeah. evil, corrupt people pushing this thing. But like this clearly was done through the membership wanting this strike. I, I heard from local PSAC workers uh, in town, like they were pushing for the strike because they they were ready and wanted to to try to get more. Yeah, and I mean, there was low turnout, and yeah, uh, the union didn't do a very good job communicating that it was, like, um, um, shortening the, the voting period. But I mean, 30% turnout, like, yeah, that's not good. But what was the turnout for uh, Toronto's last municipal election? It was 29%. And what? So is, I, I mean, John Tory's not mayor anymore, but... Um, what, was he an illegitimate mayor because like 75% of, or did he win with 75? I mean, he, he won in a landslide, but like a landslide's a landslide, right? If people choose not to vote, I mean, that's a problem that's worth addressing. Um, and it does raise a lot of questions, but, um, yeah, again, I mean, I, I don't, I'm not oh, like, there's the one person who filed that complaint to the labor board which was dismissed but beyond that one person i uh, can't find too i there aren't too many people who are like oh yeah we shouldn't be on strike right i mean there are people 
uh, as you said, out on the picket lines. I don't know what it's like in uh, you're you're based in London, right? Yeah, I, I mean in Edmond in downtown Edmonton. I mean there is uh, very high turnout, lots of support. Um, I know there's that one piece in the Ottawa Citizen that went to like a few <laughs> like smaller picket lines and was like no one supports them. See, this one guy admits it, which was, of course, then picked up in by Lauren Gunter and Andrew Coyne to be like, see, even um, see people hate them. No one agrees with them. And then, of course, uh, the Angus Reid poll came out and none of them so much as addressed, acknowledged its existence. Yeah, I wonder if there, like, because in Ottawa, like, that's where a majority of the PSAC workers uh, reside. So I wonder if, like, in that case, most of the workers probably just went to like the main pickets out in front of like Parliament where they they were doing that, right? So it would be easy, I don't know, to go over there and see a few workers over here. I, I mean, I don't know how that worked out, but I wonder if some of the the reason why those picket lines were thin was because of that. I mean, why why didn't you go to Parliament Hill? I mean, I think there was a reporter who went to Parliament Hill, and uh, their story was very different. And, and yeah, I mean, a lot of the yeah, reporting on the dispute i mean wasn't great you know particularly as it pertained to the voting irregularities um you know i mean it was broken by the national post so like go figure but you have to read like half this at least half the story and then it's like oh yeah by the way this complaint was dismissed that goes to the nature of like as you said earlier about like playing the sort of like false equivalencies where it's or or keeping things out of context because it's easy to find this one person who complained when it's like if if there was more like the issues that you're talking about about like the the voting irregularities or uh, that were like leading up to the strike vote uh if that really was an issue you would think that more members would have been coming out angry about it and yet they were on the picket lines you know uh so it's like the fact that you would cover the one and not the fact that there was overwhelming attendance at these picket lines is kind of gives the, the game away, you know. But I also, I wanted to hit, because you, you did talk about uh, the Lauren Gunter piece that really focused in the one, on the one PSAC member who said that the they hate us, referring to like the public, uh, as if the public has this negative perception of, uh, you, you know, c- civil workers. And this kind of reminded me of the, the QP strike as well, where I think that a lot of the education workers uh, when they did the big general strike, or like there was movement towards a general strike in Ontario when uh, Doug Ford tried to force the QP workers back uh, to work. And when I was talking to a lot of the members there as well, they had similar vibes where you're like on this constant sort of like tightrope, worried that like the public doesn't support you. And that can like put a lot of fear in the workers. And I wonder too if like all the negative media coverage even if it doesn't seem to be working in manufacturing the consent of the public generally, it still seems to have an impact on striking workers who are obviously in an anxious spot considering that they're they're on strike, which does put you in a kind of precarious position. Right. I, that's a very good point. That it, 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 I, I mean, it's one thing to affect the, the, the broader public's perception, but to demoralize the workers themselves... I think that plays uh, an important ideological role by telling them that they're hated, no one cares, just get back to work. 
Um, and, and, you know, it reminded me of uh, during the, the QP strike, you know, Robin Urbach had that piece about how, oh, parents aren't going to like this. They're not going to support the workers. And um, of course, she was wrong. And of course, she didn't acknowledge being wrong. She just moved on to being wrong about whatever the next thing is. Um, and I was reminded of that because Kelly Kreiderman had a piece in the Globe Mail. I know Kelly and I, you know, she's kind of like a bit right of center, I would say. But she's like usually pretty sensible, I would say. And if you read the actual whole piece, it's it, it, it's interesting. But the headline was just like, uh, you know, striking public se sector workers aren't going to have a lot of support in some parts of the country. And uh, her solution was that the the public service needs to be spread throughout Canada sort of more equitably, which I, I, I mean, I think is fair enough, but I think she also placed too much importance on like the geographical distribution. Although if you look at that Angus Reid poll, it is like it is clear that like support for uh, PSAC was disproportionately high in Quebec, in low in Saskatchewan, which is essentially the new Alberta, because it's like Alberta without like big cities. Um and uh but but I mean it was lower than average uh in Alberta, but yeah, I mean it was still fairly high. Um and again on you know in downtown Edmonton law support for the workers. I mean, I'm sure if I went some other picket lines, like you know, on the north end of the city, it might have been a different story and workers might have felt more demoralized. But but yeah, I mean, it, it um, but it, it's also at the same time, it can be easy to get caught up in public opinion when it doesn't really matter, right? It's besides the point. It's just color. Like, like who cares? I mean, if we're talking about like fundamental rights, the reason they exist, you know, in a liberal democratic society is to guard against the, the you know, so-called tyranny of the majority. Yeah, I mean, like, that's true. But I guess, like, public public opinion does matter, I guess, if you are a part of the labor movement and on strike. Because, like, you know, whether or not popular support's going to be behind back-to-work legislation or other stuff that can get done, right? Like, there is this, like, fear of public backlash undermining a strike. Yeah, no, that that uh, for sure. Um, I, I I don't want to downplay the you know importance of public support, but I also don't think we should like overemphasize it, right? No, like I I ag I agree with that, and I think in part like one of the obvious reasons for not overemphasizing it is is because it's hard to sort of like uh, capture. Right. And so it's like you could just be having anxiety over something where we have no information to fear, feel anxious or not about, you know, it's just an unknown variable. Because like even like with polling, like how accurate is it, uh, as you were pointing out, like how distributed it is uh, across the country or even across a region, it, if it's like uh, provincially or local, you know, so it's like these things are hard to measure. And it's like, but th that seems to be the focus, I think, as well, of a lot of media coverage, because it's much easier to be like, oh, here's a poll with some numbers on it, and I can report on that. Yeah, exactly. It's lazy. Like, I, I, it drives me crazy when I see a headline in the newspaper that's like, new poll suggests. And it's like, well, if you're not going to... Like, I'm not saying polls are completely worthless, of course, 
but it's like on their own they don't really tell you much right it, it, it's like what are the factors beh- that might be behind this this uh uh public sentiment and also people aren't always forthright with pollsters right like like i i think perceptions of public opinion also uh often though obviously not in this case play a role in shaping public opinion right that because like people want want to be winners you know they they want to be on the side of the 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 majority you know i mean i think it's easy to call things lazy journalism when you know reporters are in like a crunch and they're expected to churn out content but it is it's just that right it's like we need some words to go between ads and uh okay well there's this new poll so i'll just report what people think ignoring my own role in helping shape that there's two more things that happened uh one of them that you covered as well, but another one that I, I wanted to add to this discussion. But the first one was uh, Andrew Coyne brought this up because you were talking about one of the op-eds that he had written. Uh, and it was this idea of like, uh, similar to the idea that like civil servants are hated. It's this new idea that like uh, white collar people are, are not, they're not the unionization of yesterday, you know, <laughs> that, you know, back when it was like industrialized workers. And like, usually the argument goes that somehow these white collar workers are, I guess, less deserving of, you know, wage increases or labor rights. Like, I'm not sure where the argument goes. It's just, it's always pointed to of just like, oh, these are the upper-class white-collar folks, and they're different than the, I guess, lower-class blue-collar folks. But, but at the same time, Coin expresses concern that if these workers get what they want, it will raise the standards elsewhere. So, I mean, it's obviously a cheap rhetorical trick, but he practically admits that much um, because he doesn't want wages to go up because he thinks it leads to inflation, um, but then also says in brackets, oh, yeah, but also monetary policy is uh, plays a role in that. I do want to talk about inflation eventually. I'm going to try to get an economist on to, <laughs> to chat Yeah, I, I like, don't fucking know shit about inflation. Well, I mean, and it's weaponized constantly. As this, Neither like, does bookie. Andrew Coyne. So. Yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm of the feeling, you know, like economists are probably going to yell at me, but I have the feeling that most people don't know much about inflation, even economists. And so it's like, we're in this position where it's like it's like trotted out as this boogeyman to to scare people. But you can apply it to and it does get applied to everything. Like if wages remain low, that's not good for our society. But if you increase the wages, inflation will go bad, like crazy and that's bad for society. And so it's like, well, what do we do? Do we just let people starve or not ask for more ever? Like. I, I don't understand why that's seemingly this like uh, I don't know like dus ek machina <laughs> that that prevents us from doing anything. It's just like here's inflation, so therefore you can't do anything. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, you 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 nailed it. It's exactly that. It, it, it serves that purpose of just being like, oh, can't can't increase your wages. Sorry, inflation. But uh, I don't know. It's interesting. And again, I I. I don't have my uh, mind fully wrapped around inflation. And, and I think that's part of its appeal as this rhetorical device, right? It's like mystical. Um, but 
seemed to me if wages play a role in increasing inflation, why do dividends not or uh, CEO bonuses or um, those sorts of things? I mean, are, are do those exist apart from like the broader economy? That'd be a good question to ask, like uh, <laughs> an economist. I mean, because there are like what, like three left-wing economists in this country. I mean, there's also like I know that there is some evidence that a lot of the the inflation is caused by profiteering. That being said, with the I I did want to go back to the white collar blue collar thing because like the the interesting thing there to me is that, you know, our manufacturing base in, in this country as well and as in other Western countries has been gutted. Uh, you know. It isn't what it used to be. And so there's always this like game whenever uh, a union goes on strike, because most unions now are in uh, like non-manufacturing occupations. And so it's like this, this sort of like rhetorical tool to put like white color against blue color is constantly used when it's like there's more, in some sense, office workers, you know, government service workers, that it's not going to be like someone in a factory now fighting for wages. Like, I, I do wonder, like, why why does this tool, like, or, or why does this rhetorical strategy constantly get utilized, even though I feel like the public generally is aware of the fact that, like, manufacturing isn't as common as it once was, and that you know, office workers deserve a fair wage similar to, to a, you know, factory worker. Yeah. I mean, these guys will all want like office workers to be replaced by AI anyways, but, um, but, but yeah, I, I, I mean, exactly like the, this, this blue collar working class of old um, doesn't, exist in the same way it used to right I, I i mean with automation like you look at like the 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 tar sands is a good example of that um i mean the, you know these companies laid off a ton of workers when oil prices went down in 2014 uh they got massive corporate tax cuts from jason kenny oil prices are the highest they've ever been but yet they're not uh hiring back most of those workers because they would rather invest in automation because it allows them to get more oil of the, out of the ground quicker with less costs, which allows them to maximize their profit. So, um, you know, it, it's really rich for um, these uh, people who get paid to write shit um, for, you know, probably work like 12 hours a week doing that um to to say to you know uh purport to represent the uh the you know the blue collar uh working class who are like getting their hands dirty in like a factory um when the the those jobs uh don't exist less now not because of unions it's because of their bosses. And that's another thing. You mentioned the phrase union bosses. I, I mean, union bosses are elected. Like corporate bosses, I mean, are elected by like the, 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 the board and shareholders, but they're not elected by people who work for them. So 
um and, and you know it's interesting that the same people who are constantly complaining about union bosses are uh, perfectly fine with corporate bosses though to be fair uh they all would vote for their current bosses if they had the opportunity so my my other comment of uh, that you didn't cover that I want to or at least you didn't cover it in the the article that you wrote for your Substack was this uh this idea of how you know striking workers in holding a picket line is the equivalent to what the convoy did <laughs> which we laugh cuz it is so absurd but i saw many media personalities maybe i didn't notice if any like articles were written but i saw many media personalities on twitter openly making this statement uh i think max fawcett is his name was saying it as well yeah, yeah. and it's just like yeah, I don't know. I, I guess what I would ask is, what's going on? <laughs> well, though, I think Max backed down from that. He does that a lot when he's like the far right and far left are the exact same. Exact same. But then you push him on and he's like, okay, fine. They're not the exact same. Like the far right's actually a threat to um, to our collective fabric in a way that the far left isn't. But yeah, the National Post editorial, actually, which probably was written by Carson Jeremiah. I don't know if you saw that one, uh, where it was like, stay strong, Trudeau, like stand up to the public sector workers. And it's like, wow, free advice from uh, your uh, mortal enemy is always great. But um, that piece also complained that the workers were using tactics of the convoy but National Post supported the convoy, so does that mean they support public sector workers now? Obviously not. It's just a cheap rhetorical device they use to to um, bludgeon the working class. We saw this with the National Post's uh, Rupa Subramaya, who throughout the pandemic and, and during the the trucker convoy occupation in ottawa was constantly in support of the truckers and it like not a word was given for like it being a bad thing yet then it's all of a sudden like now they can utilize it as like well if that's bad like clearly striking workers are bad and the government has to force them back uh or end their pickets now as well you know it's like a it's a cheap gotcha right from from the right but well first of all their tactics are of course not the same um like picketing is not the same as like leaving your trucks running like all day honking in all hours of the night um you know uh, raiding a soup kitchen <laughs> like <laughs> like these are things unions would never imagine doing right but even then i mean if we're talking about disrupting business as usual which the the convoy did effectively Right. I mean, they got what they wanted. Yeah. Like you can't just look at their means. You have to look at their desired ends. And and, and I think that shows why ridiculous, like embarrassing comparison that is. I mean, one group, I mean, had a, a, a you know, I mean, PSAC has clear demands. Maybe you agree with them. Maybe you don't. But I mean, it's clear that they're striking with a clear end in mind. And you can see what those demands are publicly. I mean, the, the 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 convoy. I mean, it was just a whole miasma of grievances. Um, you know, ostensibly it was vaccine mandates for 
uh, international truckers. And I mean, fine, like in retrospect, like at the time I was fully in support of vaccine mandates, but in retrospect, like having bosses determine uh, their workers' uh, healthcare decisions is, I think, a problem. But it wasn't just that, right? I mean, you had these card-carrying racists who founded the damn convoy. Um, you had this, uh, you know, group calling for like an unelected junta to replace the federal government. Like it was, it was, I, and I think that was. Um, advantageous to the convoy because it can sort of mean all these things to all these people who are just like worn out from covid and they just want to pretend it's over and so they could say oh well what do you mean this is a peaceful protest of people from all different racial backgrounds um you know i remember i i, I posted uh i posted the canada anti-hate network's article about like the racist connections of the founders of the convoy and someone, some, someone who's a person of color who I know sort of gone off the rails during COVID uh, was like, what's the evidence that the convoy is racist? And I'm like, well, it's in the article you're commenting on. Um, like it's founders are literally racist. And then she was like, oh, but that's not everyone who's participating in it. And I mean, that fair enough, but I, I, I wasn't suggesting that it was. It, it's just, uh, you know, who are the people manipulating a, a lot of well-intentioned people, I'm sure, who participated in it. And uh, I think a lot of these people need a union, right? Um, because that is a major issue for, for, for like public sector unions in terms of grievances is uh, like vaccine mandates. Like that's being grieved a lot. I mean, if you can, and it's tied to remote work too, right? It's like, if you can do your job adequately remotely, like obviously you should get vaccinated. Like you should also not smoke cigarettes, right? And we should say this, this remote work was one of the issues that PSAC was bargaining for. Right, which was like ridiculed. It was like, aha, you want remote work, but you're expecting people to show up in person at the picket line. And it's like, yes, that is what a picket line is. It's like saying, oh, you want better con working conditions, but you're not willing to work. It's like, yes, because we're on strike. But yeah, I mean, the and of course they got, I mean, they didn't, like they got the ability to grieve uh, forced return to work and for it to be decided on like a case-by-case -case basis, which I think is a pretty big win. And this was something that was, you know, widely ridiculed, but it also, it doesn't cost the government anything to let people work from home. Like, right. It's, I mean, there was a statement from the government. I mean, I know Fortier was talking about sunshines and rainbows and how, uh, you know, building a sense of community in the workplace. But then you had another government statement statement that was like, well, it's harder to manage workers when they're not in the same building. But ultimately, like workers should have the choice, right? Like some some people want to return to work, right? Like especially I could tell you in like the media industry, like working in newsroom is valuable. I mean, that's one thing I really miss about like, uh, working at like a mainstream news outlet is being able to be in the newsroom with other people and bounce ideas off each other and get into arguments and um and, and you know that's a major problem but I, I again yeah i think it comes down to a matter of workers being able to decide uh where they can work best 
within reason rather than the employer just telling them en masse to know you have to come into the workplace. Yeah. And I wonder too, like uh, how this will be grieved. Cause as we said, like the treasury board, as we record this uh, today, the treasury board uh, got a tentative agreement. So that's not including the CRA, which we still don't know like how that's going to uh, end up. But like, I do wonder how they're going to grieve it. Like if it's on a case by case basis. So it is, I mean, it's going to depend on the writing of the contract, right? Which I don't know if we like fully have that. Yeah, no, I mean, the 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 actual like tentative agreement isn't public. We just know what PSAC said in their news release that was uh, put out late last night. Um, but yeah, I mean, I suspect it would be right because it's still, I mean, the problem with, from my understanding of this is that it's still management's prerogative to decide. It's just they can't decide as a group. They have to decide on a case-by-case basis. So what the, the agreement does is it allows workers, if they feel that they've been unfairly called back into the office, to grieve it and then express why their uh, circumstances are conducive towards remote work. Which I, I I mean is 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 a good thing. Like I think that that's a big win more than the wage stuff, right? Because I mean the government barely moved on wages, right? I think they increased them from their you know three percent offer. I think it's like you know instead of nine percent over over three years, it's twelve point six percent over four years. Right. That's not like a a huge win for the union. I mean, they got a lump sum payment, which is, again, an improvement on uh, what the government was asking for. But I think really the big wins are uh, outside the realm of wages, right? And the ability to grieve uh, forced return to work, I think, is is a big one. so is giving indigenous uh, employees uh, an extra five paid days off a year to do traditional practices. And sadly for Carson, they also got their social justice funding. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. The horror. And uh, what else did they get? Oh, yeah, there's some language about contracting out services, which seems to me kind of vague and like will be easy to abuse. But... You know, I mean, they did get a better deal than they would have gotten had they not gone on strike. So exactly. I mean, even in the wage front, like that, that's you still got to celebrate that win. They still moved the government on it by going on strike. So, yeah, I mean, again, like with inflation, like obviously the agreement is written in some assumption that inflation is going to go down. And so if it does, if, I mean, if it goes down to 3%, which I think is like what's being forecasted, then, yeah, I guess they're making slightly above inflation. Yeah, I mean, I I think that aspect of the agreement was somewhat disappointing. I mean, obviously, they weren't going to get 4.5 a year. It would be nice to get, you know, 3.5 or something. But, of course, there are other factors at play play as well. And, uh, you know, it's easy for us to say what the union should or shouldn't have done when we weren't the ones, uh, you know, risking our livelihoods to uh, go on strike. I'm going to end. So my my goal is with this podcast to, you know, improve things, improve society. Dare I, (laughs) dare I I try to make that uh, happen, you know? Uh, And so I I guess I'll end with two very brief, I don't know, like uh, proactive things. Like, is there anything 
that you can think of for how uh, journalism can improve on this front? Like, is it, uh, I mean, it could just be that it's down to corporate influence and like the solution is just independent journalism or is it an education thing? But also like, uh, you know, what can, what can people do to, to push back against this uh, bad media stuff? Besides, I guess, supporting independent left-wing journalism uh, like yourself. Well, I think that um, that's a good question, but I think that while it's easy to just focus on the impact of the strike, like in disrupting life is normal, because there's a sense that that's what readers want to read. I think it's important to also, and I'm not saying that's not important, but it's important for, for and this is about, I would say media coverage in general, it's important to explain how we got here. And key to that is clearly writing about what the workers are asking for and putting it in the appropriate context. Um, there's a there's a pretty good piece in the CBC at the beginning of the year from uh, Nicole Williams, who actually went to journalism school with myself and the uh, Eric and Marino from Big Shiny Takes. And I thought, I mean, the headline was, uh, it was about what the CRA workers were asking for. And so the headline included a quote that called it like crazy or something. But if you actually read the story, I think it does a good job of outlining here's what they're asking for. Here's why they're asking for it. And here are some people who think that that's like exorbitant, right? I think, right? Because I I, I, I don't think reporters should ign completely ignore uh, what the employer is saying or what uh, people who are sympathetic to the employer are saying, but that that shouldn't come at the expense of giving the union a fair hearing in, in the media. And I think that that, is a challenge because it's the the media environment is is inherently hostile towards workers. I mean, I think there are ways that uh, unions could probably better handle media relations, which I won't get into. But at the end of the day, I, I do think journalists have a responsibility to not write the employer's talking points for them, right? To lead with what what's causing this disruption and I, I and that all circles back to what the workers are asking for what their conditions are like i mean call up the union ask to speak to some workers sometimes they won't let you but i mean it's worth a try right to just get a sense of what they're dealing with and how their demands are reflected in their day-to-day -day work right but uh, again, I, I, I mean, it's really the commentary that's that that's the worst. That's clearly uh, ideological, and it's clearly playing around with numbers to make it seem like these workers are being so unreasonable, right? Like Lauren Gunter saying that uh, CRA workers are asking for thirty percent over three years, like a, less than a week after they lowered their demand to uh 22.5% over 3 years right like um and that's another thing and and I think that's also a challenge for reporters and I mean it's not easy when things are are so rapidly evolving but to make sure you're up to date with the latest information like it's hard I you know I struggled that with that when I was writing my piece but um it, it's definitely something that's important I mean, Gunter is just a simple country 
commenter. Like, hi. <laughs> yeah, from Edmonton. Uh, for for those who don't know, on my my previous podcast, Imperial News, Lauren Gunter was a frequent guest on Rebel News, and I had to constantly talk about him. Yeah, he's fucking brutal. Although I have heard on good authority that he makes good brownies. Well, that, yeah, but he should stick to that. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. Should stick to what he's good at. Well, thank you so much, Jeremy, for being my first guest. I, I appreciate it. Oh, the uh, the privilege is mine. Thanks again to Jeremy Appel. You can find his work again at theorchard.substack.com. You can also follow him on Twitter at JeremyAppel1025. And again, stay tuned for that book. I don't know when it's coming out, but consider yourself teased. Lastly, if you enjoy this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash laborintensive. If you become a member, you can have access to the patron-only podcast that I do with Eric Wickham called Bad Books by Bad People. You might know Eric from being a co-host of Big Shiny Takes, which is also hosted by Jeremy Appel, who I interviewed on today's podcast. So if that interests you, go check it out. And thank you for listening. I will see you next week. This podcast is part of the Harbinger Media Network, which is a community of progressive podcasts. Visit their website at harbingermedianetwork.com to listen to other incredible left-leaning podcasts. Thanks as well to Dan Van Winden, who produced the music for this podcast. If you want to follow Labor Intensive on social media, find links to our social media accounts in the show notes of this episode.